Welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We interview interesting people in order to unlock insights into behavioral science and how we can apply those to work and life. This week, we got to talk with Charlotte Blank, Chief Behavioral Officer of Merits Corporation, one of the largest incentive, or as they like to be called now, performance improvement companies in the world. Charlotte graduated magna cum laude from Emory University, where she studied neuroscience and behavioral biology. She got her MBA from Harvard University. Before joining Merit, she worked in social media and football advertising at General Motors. And she describes her job now as selling science. Yes, I thought that was a great summary of how she, as a practitioner inside of a company, sees her work. Yeah. Our conversation started with some interesting discussion on her background and what got her interested in behavioral science. And then we drifted uh, (laughs) into a conversation of how fairness is key to designing successful programs and her association with the amazing researcher Franz Duval. Uh, she also talked about the research that looked at data transparency, which is a key part of, of this uh, discussion with her, and what makes some marketing efforts creepy versus helpful. Yes, I, I really liked the real-world application and how we can mitigate some of that creepiness by applying to just social etiquettes that we have all the time. One, don't talk behind people's backs, and two, don't make assumptions. And if we apply those to our digital world as well as our marketing dealings, we'll be much better off. Yeah, she gave some great recommendations for books to read, which we'll make sure to list on the um, in the copy of, yes. of the description. And her choice for her theme song was a bit surprising, but right on target. Yes, it was definitely on target. <laughs> um, so listen up. We hope you will enjoy this Behavioral Grooves podcast with Charlotte Blank. We definitely had very much fun in making it. So, groove on. Charlotte Blank, welcome. Thank you. Glad to, to be the here. Behavioral Groove Studios at Cooper Tavern today. <laughs> Lovely to be here in Minneapolis. Yeah. <laughs> so, you, you flew in from Detroit? I did this morning from Detroit. And it's colder here? It is, substantially. It feels to me. <laughs> this is a warm day I in heard Minneapolis get, yeah, compared I heard. to what it has been. So yeah. be thankful for that. Okay. Yeah. So. Well, thank you for joining us. We're, we are really glad to have you here. And let's uh, let's start with a little speed round, okay? Sounds good. Jonas Salk or Antonio Damasio? Damasio. Okay. How about uh, loss aversion or social pressure as a bigger influence on behavior? Mm, good one. Gosh, I'm going to go with social, social proof in this first round. Okay. Nature versus nurture. Oh, the toughest of all. These aren't easy questions. Um, <laughs> nature. Okay, that's, that's great. And it can be both. Good. I think we'll, we'll end it there. That, that, so. that, that's a good way just to, you know, lubricate the mind a little bit. Great. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, would, I, I am really curious. Uh, so you graduate from Emory in neuroscience and biology, Mm -hmm. and you end up in behavioral sciences. Right. How does the the bridge go? How do do you get from neuroscience and biology, very hard sciences, to kind of the softer science? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Glad to, yeah. um, You're actually missing a B, and it was was, um, neuroscience and behavioral biology. Oh, it was behavioral biology. Yeah, the link was baked right in there. No worries. Okay, good. Do you, want, do you want to still talk about that? Yeah, okay, I still want to talk about that. <laughs> um, it was a fascinating major. I believe now NBB at Emory, Neuroscience and Behavioral Biology, is actually now their most popular major. Um, and it was essentially, I think, ahead of its time before this sort of behavioral science movement that we're all excited about. Um, it was a look, a very interdisciplinary look at behavior. And so it pulled from some basics from neuroscience, but also it was, there was a lot of elective component where we could pull from all different departments at Emory, from anthropology, psychology, even philosophy and religion, uh, biology, of course. So there's all of these different components to your earlier question about nature and nurture um, that influence judgment, decision-making, and behavior. Um, and so in particular, what I loved about Emory is their strength in primate studies and evolutionary biology by what mm-hmm. we can learn from modern-day chimps, our closest cousins, and, and Franz de Waal is based at Emory in his research on bonobos and social structures. He has this fabulous book, Chimpanzee Politics. I didn't know he was at, mm-hmm. at Emory. Oh, he's an Emory guy. Yeah. And I, oh, my God. I, I love his work. 
I know. I, I think yeah, I'm his to... biggest groupie. He, he <laughs> I always try to see him when I'm in Atlanta. I think he rolls his eyes. But uh, I just I could I could talk about that the chimp stuff all day. So I think that that, yeah, that was a great start. Groundbreaking work. Mm -hmm. uh, so for listeners who aren't familiar with his work, can you can you summarize like one of those more Gosh, yeah. Fr Franz de Waal, I think um, he is just such a leader in, broadly speaking, ethology and an understanding of animal behavior and how much we can learn about ourselves from studying animals. Um, and he's evolved from being primarily an expert in primates and in particular bonobos to actually speaking more broadly about other uh, types of animals. So he has a great, I think his most recent book is called are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? It's something along, if I, I might I not have gotten that. it perfect, oh, but that. it's uh, he, he expands his purview there to talk about corvids, you know, incredibly smart kind of areas, species of birds, um, dolphins, dogs, you know, and, and even further out, octopuses. I'm like really into octopuses lately, um, but just all kinds of intelligence that we can study in animals if we let go of our preconceptions about what intelligence means, which as humans, we've been biased to design our our very definition of intelligence with things like sp speaking language, like I'm mm -hmm. speaking to you now. Well, maybe dogs can't do that, but there are other ways that, that, they, that they demonstrate, that they communicate. Yeah. And we might have to come back to a conversation about octopuses. Yeah. That, that, that is a little far. So is he kind of a follower of, uh, say, Clark Hall and the early behavioralist kind of Kind of movement. Can't say I'm familiar with Clark Hall or, or the connection. He, he was looking at the behavior of uh, rats and and how they how they move through mazes and that sort of thing. Um, uh, you know, and, I get I guess and and, and, and a, as a metaphor or a correlation to how people mm -hmm. act as well. I guess it's all connected, and what's, I think, fun about science is how insights build on one another, but I would say what Franz de Waal's work is best known for is the way they connect with one another socially and even demonstrate precursors or examples of what we would call moral behavior and pro-social mm -hmm. behavior and giving to one another and anything as, from as simple as the fact that other primates demonstrate um, yawn contagion and oh. make each other yawn the way we do. I mean, that's sort of a marker of empathy that they share. Yeah. Um, and in some that's of so these, cool. yeah, in some of these um, really well-established tests of pro-social behavior and how we perceive fairness, like the ultimatum game, yep. um, he finds similar effects in, in... He has the TED Talk that he talks about the capuchin monkeys and the yeah, fairness component with the cucumber so is great. And I was in Chicago just this week, and the presenter brought that video up. And so it has been, uh, again, it's one of those videos that when you see it, mm -hmm. it's like you go, yeah, we, we, it's an innate part of us, that fairness Absolutely. aspect. And so how do we build that in as we go on for yeah. so Yeah. The capuchin and the grapes always brings the house down. There aren't enough <laughs> videos in behavioral science. All I think right. we're gonna we're we're looking into that. There's the yeah. behavioral science at its core is funny. You know, I think the best what's one of my favorite things about it, and uh, we need we need more evidence of that to. For use for our gatherings I was, like I was this. at a presentation uh, this morning uh, with a bunch of stockbrokers and uh, showed them the uh, Dan Simon's work on the invisible gorilla. Yeah. And uh, it, they'd never seen it before. And so they were like, wow, this is so amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. It's great. It's, it's, and, and it's that one's the, the double hitter because it's funny. And also it's the perfect example of the kind of thing where you see it and you think, I definitely wouldn't fall for that. That wouldn't apply to me. <laughs> yeah, and right. I think that's sort of another principle of behavioral science where we see all these great examples, you know, Cialdini's work of these field studies in the real mm. world and how people are influenced by these hidden motivators and you read them and you think, but that's everybody else. I wouldn't, <laughs> yeah. I'm rational. And I almost think that's one of the litmus tests of a really interesting behavioral science cases. Is, oh yeah, that's not me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's somebody else. Yeah. yeah we they, were talking about that earlier today. We are looking um, uh, uh, in regards to what was it, and I'm, I'm drawing a blank on it, Tim. We we were just talking about it, and and like we're impacted by this as well. He's giving me a blank look. So I'm, we're I'm sorry. Did, really? Were we really talking about? It? Are you just making that up? <laughs> no, we were really talking about it. I buy it. And I'm we, sure that's all you guys talk about. <laughs> yeah. Well, we <laughs> we, we are do. Geeks. We are geeks. Yeah. We, there we but, go. Oh. So, Charlotte, tell me. Uh, a little bit about your work then at Merits and how, so, so coming from, uh, you know, the background that you have, how are you 
chief behavioral officer at Merits. Tell us about how that came about and then what, what do you do? What's your role? And we understand that you are the first chief behavioral officer in the whole wide world. I don't think that's the case. Really? <laughs> no. I think somebody at the conference said that when we were there. I, they I were, like that, though. <laughs> I, I want to go with it. I'm I a marketing We guy. go with I'm the first in the quote-unquote incentive industry. Which we, don't, we don't like that term because you know yeah, we're bringing yeah. behavioral science to make this about much more than incentives. But um, that's one way to say it. But, you know, we all, I'm sure everyone in this room is a big Dan Ariely fan. Uh, he holds that title at Lemonade, which is a really yep. disruptive, fascinating oh, insurance yeah. model, okay. um, as well as our but friend. But he's a, he's a founder. Isn't he a founder as well? Don't think so. No, no I think he was brought one? onto the board. I'm not oh, sure. Really? Yeah, don't okay. quote me on that. But another is our friend, Matt Wallert, who um, that's, he's actually the one who really gave me the idea of like, you should go with this title. And he's at um, Clover Health okay. as oh, chief behavioral okay. officer. And before okay. before taking on that role formally, he was sort of on a sort of on a road show and a mission to make chief behavioral officers a thing and sort mm. of evangelizing the concept. So I actually took that, some of his work and sort of thought, you know, if, if any company should have one, Merits should, because yeah. we kind of invented the space in some ways when it comes to incentivizing behavior, um, in, in our case, over 100 years ago in sales incentives. But, you know, through that time have built such an incredible bank of experience um, and knowledge about what really motivates human behavior. And um, our company has had a, a longstanding commitment to bringing a lot of science to that approach. Um, so that was really what drove the decision was kind of to formalize, elevate, and make very visible in public Merits's commitment to a scientific understanding of human behavior. Okay. So, so what do you do on a daily basis? What's your, what, what are the types of roles that you take on and, and, and the work that you do? Um, well, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches and an exercise in prioritization <laughs> because uh, for those who are not familiar with merits, um, you know, we kind of do everything for everyone. Uh -huh. We have an incredibly broad, diverse portfolio of solutions um, that span across sales incentive, employee recognition, consumer loyalty, rewards, travel, meetings, events, trade shows, research, surveys. Um, and we do that for well over a third of the Fortune 100 companies across every industry. So okay. there is so much happening and it's kind of a behavioral scientist's playground. You know, when we came in and said, we want to start really applying this controlled experimentation method here, opening the doors to our academic partners and inviting them in to do research with us. Well, where do you start? You know, and so, so far I've just been kind of going where the energy is and where the momentum is, where some of our biggest programs are where we see some really interesting opportunities to test some of our favorite principles. Um, but we're, we're you know, c continuing to refine our roadmap and align that with these fascinating academics. So what, what have you been working on recently that, um, that is really fun and exciting? What, what's sort of tripping your trigger these days? Um, so I'd say what gets me out of bed each day and what makes me feel so lucky to do the work that I do is that I feel like we're not just a part of, but hopefully lead, helping to lead this impending movement in applied behavioral science as it relates to the modern marketplace. Um, I think there's, for some reason, all of the great examples and case studies that we all share um, of examples of testing and applying these principles seem to come from government policy, mm -hmm. um, nudge units set up in municipalities and government organizations, and they're fascinating and really important work because they tend to be oriented toward um, health behaviors yep. and similar. Um, but I think it's kind of funny that you don't see as many examples from the business world. Um, and so who better than Merits to do that? So that's how I like to think about this is, you know, when we have the breadth of clients that we have, the nature of our work and the fact that we're already organizing programs that traffic this data that has to do with influencing behavior and then mirroring that with a lot of my kind of day-to-day -day work, which is interacting with academics. Um, so I like to think of it as we're the ones kind of putting together this movement. So I think there's sort of two sides to that. And one is, is doing the actual work. It's running experiments. It's internal consulting with um, Merits has a lot of people with the word designer in their title you know, a title like solution designer. So their role is to think through from a participant standpoint, what behaviors are we ultimately trying to influence? What are the barriers in the way? Um, how can we design an optimal solution that really brings out the best in people? So we would work with folks like that, account teams who help us communicate, um, and, and really, and, you know, a lot of people who are just interested in this at Merit. So a lot of what we do is internal and also running these experiments. But the other half of the party, and to your question, what I think is so exciting too, is generating demand and mm -hmm. talking about this and 
speaking about it and meeting with you guys and doing podcasts and um, engaging with our clients and getting them interested in and curious about behavioral science so that I can kind of, you know, I like to say sometimes I'm a salesperson of science, okay. just in that, you know, selling the idea that, um, you know, well, if you think this is cool, if you like these examples, um, you know, or if it sparked an idea for you, then good news, you could be a part of this movement with us. This is a nascent field. It's right. new. There are new ideas coming out of academia still every day. Um, and very few examples of real world data, uh, really proving this out. So it's, it's kind of getting people excited is, I guess, my favorite part. So one of the things that Tim and I have talked about actually quite a bit is how organizations that are using this tend to be using behavioral science more on that consumer-facing side. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and we haven't seen as much on the employee-facing side that, that, you know, the motivational component outside of the the incentive, the merits of the world, and the various different companies that are doing that, but they're help us understand where you see that being played. Is it is it growing in your mind? Where is that uh, component of our organizations actually taking that next step to say, hey, not only are we taking a behavioral science perspective on our on our work, but we're taking a behavioral science perspective. In on our employees and internally inside mm. of the organization and on our people. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, and I think you you kind of touched on this, but the line for us can get quite blurry when mm. many or most of our solutions involve employee related programs or partner related programs. So, in a way, we are benefiting just by learning what we learn from these experiments we run with our clients. Um, so far, internally, I've not been involved with any um, experimental design, but just more from like an education and training perspective. Okay. It's really important that we um, kind of spread this this passion and excitement throughout Merits's organization because everybody sort of touches this. Okay. Um, but we're, we're, we're very much a sort of client-focused uh, practice so far. With your clients, have you seen your clients embracing internally, working mm. with their employees and applying these behavioral science principles? Yeah, a few trends I'm noticing with clients is, number one, just a general sort of increase in, I'll call it sophistication, or just interest in the scientific method and a much easier sell on the concept of experimentations and having a control group, even when it comes to employees, yeah. um, that there are ways to design around concerns about fairness and things like that. Um, so just an increasing acceptance and enthusiasm for really applying behavioral science, and by that I mean running RCTs. Yep. Um, and another thing I'm seeing start to slowly build, or maybe quickly build, but a new thing, is an interest in building a behavioral science practice of their own. So okay. I'm, I'm increasingly being asked about, you know, what does a chief behavioral officer do, and how big is your team, and how do you work, and how do you split your time between external and internal? So um, I think this this movement is is an exponential one, yes. and it's tomorrow is going to look much more different than, you know, a week ago. So put your crystal ball out or pull it out, um, put on your, you know, future thinking hat a year, two years down the road, wh where do you see this behavioral science going? Where's, where's the next hot thing that's going to be taking off? I think um, one thing that I like about behavioral science at the very highest, most conceptual level is that it tends to remind me and remind people more about what we all share in common with one another than about our individual differences. Um, so I, I actually really like that sort of orientation and um, not that it's a friction, but it's a conversation I have a lot that, especially in the marketing side, people want to like segment everything and use data to really customize everything and target to the individual level, like what is this person motivated by versus that person, which I agree is interesting, but I think where we like to play in behavioral science is a bit more about the everyman effect or on okay. average. But I do think that that is the next phase of the science. Like we're, we're going to start getting more... Um, customized and individualized, especially as trends like artificial intelligence enable us to, mm -hmm. to easily do that. Um, and another thing that's, I think, helping that and what we've been developing internally is a greater um, coordination with our decision sciences and data analytics teams mm -hmm. internally who work m much more closely with the day-to-day -day client data and can start to surface specific ideas, opportunities that might, that might arise as a correlation in the data. Um, but we can get in there and then say, not just a test of, 
group A and group B each get a group of different treatment, but it's a test of like, how is this affecting this type of person or this, this participant who tends to exhibit this behavior? Are they gonna be influenced by this nudge more yeah. than another group. You, you had mentioned, uh, speaking of tests, you had used the term RCTs. I just wanted to make sure that for our listeners, uh, RCT is a random control test uh, where it's typically having multiple conditions uh, set up in a kind of a clinical uh, area. But um, I, I wanted to come back to this idea of fairness, uh, especially with uh, your your fanhood around France de Ball, uh, is uh, where do you see fairness playing out in the workplace? What, what, why is fairness so important in, in the workplace? Um, Even from a leadership perspective, because I think when you were talking about it here, it was the fact that to put in a randomized control test, right, you, you, have, you have different mm -hmm. conditions for two different groups, mm -hmm. and thus, Leadership, at least in, in the work that, that I've done, has a hesitation to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so where, where does that play and where do you see that moving? Yeah, I think fairness comes into play in a, a lot of the work we do. So at the tactical level in designing experiments, that might be a common cause for concern. The fact that you need to have a control group versus a treatment group might mean that someone's getting something that others aren't getting. So at the, the basic level, it might be, you know, one group gets cash and another gets, you know, an equivalent amount of points and yep. we're measuring which one drives more performance. Um, but in the, the most basic simple terms, we might run a study like that for a few months and then simply flip-flop the group so that then everybody at the end of the day has the same treatment just at different times. Um, and other sort of measures like that that might address those type of concerns, but I do notice that that's one of the things that people raise a lot, especially when we're talking about employees. Mm -hmm. um, and then I would say that fairness would also be a really central kind of pillar to just broadly speaking our solution design. When we think mm -hmm. about designing a program that's intended to motivate behavior of any kind, fairness is such a crucial component to it, not only because at the deepest level we are so attuned to what's fair and what's unfair, and we will, you know, in the Franz de Wall example, it was a monkey rejecting a grape that he was perfectly happy to accept. Oh, sorry, he was rejecting cucumber, a cucumber. Cucumber, yeah. cucumber was fine the first three tiles until he notices his neighbor's getting a grape. Now suddenly the cucumber is absolutely unacceptable. And it's a great metaphor, you know, for other research with humans that suggests in thought experiments that people would prefer to accept um, a lower salary that's, relatively speaking, the highest salary in the fictional company. Yep. Than they would. Yeah, uh, Tim just wrote a podcast or uh, a blog about a that. A blog about that. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So fairness is just like so, so, so <clears throat> crucial, and and it's part of just like deep in our hearts, we're so attuned to it. So that needs to be thought through in solution design, and when we put together things like rule structures and deciding. Uh, and giving people feedback on how well they're doing versus others, we we have to think about whether it's a fair comparison. You know, and we don't. One common thing that might happen is someone might uh, be be penalized for doing quite well, but they happen to just be in a super high performing market. Mm -hmm. You know, so when that happens, are you demotivating this person who, compared to the average in the country, might be a really strong performer? So, do you recalibrate recal that? to ensure that people feel that they're being evaluated fairly. Yeah, that's, a, a, that's a great example. There's a quote, uh, and I'll, I'll misquote it like I always do, um, but fairness is, is like air. Uh, its lack of, of being there is much more apparent mm. than uh, it being there. And I always talk uh, when working with clients is saying, Nobody is going to go that extra mile because you have a fair program in right. place or you're going to do something. <laughs> right. But, oh, you will hear about it if there's if any unfair. perception, any any slight perception of unfairness. And so it really does have that component as you're thinking about it. it and it shows up in so many different ways mm -hmm. within, within you know, an incentive program, within just performance management, within a whole range of organizational constraints as you're working with them. And so it's a, it's a good piece to, to keep uh, in, in, in your, mind. And your point about how people notice unfairness only when it's, you know, when fairness only when it's not there. Um, that also reminds me of just kind of compensation in general yes. and how it's, it's one of those things that's as long as it's fair and it's considered kind of a hygiene factor, mm -hmm. you know, or table stakes that as long as things are fair, then you're not going to move the needle a whole lot more by making it slightly better than fair, yeah. 
but if it's a little bit below fair, then people are going to be. Which is which is interesting because uh, very rarely, uh, at least in the United States, uh, actual income is is not transparent, right? It's 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 often you know you can kind of have a perception of what it is, but uh, but oftentimes we don't really know exactly what our coworkers are are making, and yet we use we use money as as that common comparison. Mm-hmm. Or we have the perception of that. Um, Which is really problematic because you're calling out a whole bunch of biases that sort of conflict with each other. Yes. So we do <laughs> use we do use money to as a proxy for our value and what we're worth mm-hmm. um, due to this kind of medium maximization bias to yep. focus on something you can measure uh, in place of something that's like a bit squishier and further out. But at the same time, we have this lack of transparency going on everywhere. So you're kind of basing everything on something you think you're measuring well, but could be wildly off well, and could be quite unfair to your earlier be, point. It could be very quite unfair. And, and there's confirmation bias with the information that you're getting and, and anchoring yeah. in based on you know probably faulty data and a variety of different factors that come yeah, around it, with this. And so it lends, it's, it's, it's very much that component of it's this really squishy kind of weird thing that has conflicting biases that act upon it. And it's, it's a strange component that we have in, in the U.S. in particular. So um, shifting gears here, you're, tonight you're going to be talking about uh, data transparency. And uh, the, the, uh, at, at, our, at our meetup, the title is Don't Be Creepy, <laughs> <laughs> which, which I love, by the way. Uh, for those who are uh, listening on the podcast and are not going to be able to take advantage of uh, being here in person, can you, could you give us a little uh, summary uh, about what, what you're going to be talking about? Yeah, and that's actually a great transition as we were starting to talk a little bit about transparency. That's another just broad trend that I think marketers are going to have to increasingly face um, is giving people transparency to the value that you're providing them. Um, This particular study that I was going to talk about tonight, it was done in partnership with some of our academic friends. So these would be with um, Leslie John, Tammy Kim, and Kate Baraz, uh, three different academic partners who are all very interested in basically the concepts of privacy and transparency in this age of big data Mm. and how brands are increasingly able to target and customize specific recommendations um, or, or advertisements to people based on their data. Um, and so what does that mean from a privacy standpoint? And basically, how do you, um, we all want to be on the right side of what's helpful versus what's creepy. Yes. You know, and that's, I got right. that that word from them. They use it all the time because there's <laughs> we all know what that feels like. And Nick and I were talking on the way over here about all the examples we have of being targeted yeah. with weird things and you're like how did they hear that about me yeah so um so this experiment what we did with reward sphere which is a merits solution um that powers uh the reward programs that we're all members of we have over 100 million participants in these consumer loyalty programs across many of the big um hospitality um, airline and credit card companies anytime you're earning points or status towards something that you could redeem for an experience or merchandise that might be a merits program so our site is quite like though you would experience it as the brand um, merits might be behind that and it it, it's quite similar to uh, an online retail experience so we have a lot of functionality that customers increasingly expect like um, there's some level of understanding that brands are going to be recommending items to me based on my data but we share that um, concern for getting that right and being on the right side of helpful versus creepy so what we've learned from Leslie Tammy and Kate is that it sounds like the field of social science can give us some rules of thumb or basically social norms that we know from the real world that seem to translate over into the digital space of data sharing. So one of those rules we would call um, first person sharing and it's as opposed to third party sharing. So it's the idea of don't talk behind someone's back. Don't say, you know, it might be the case if I have something um, and by the way, none of this applies to really sensitive information. I mean, that's yes. never okay. But if let's say it's something kind of in between, like I'm on a diet and I tell Nick about that at work. But then later on, you know, Kurt comes up to me and says, Nick mentioned you're on a diet. You know, have you tried the whole 30 yet? I'd be like, well, you know, I don't mind that you know, but I'd rather have told you, I'd rather you not have gotten that from someone else. So that's kind of one of the rules um, that they were found from a series of lab experiments. 
And then a very similar one, but just you know, slightly nuanced, is another rule of direct information sharing versus inference. Like you shouldn't assume something, you shouldn't infer about uh, someone. You should have that knowledge directly from them. But we um, are so good at inferring, aren't we? We and we think we are we at think, finding that's patterns. Right. We, that's right. We think we are. Yeah. Yeah, and there's some, you know, there's some examples of brands. You know, even when you get it right, even when you've made a really good guess. Um, that that can be off-putting to someone where I, they didn't get that information directly from you. Well, one of the one of the local hometown stores here, Target, is very famous for the the, the component where they sent the the baby advertisement to the pregnant to to the teenager whose dad then contacted them. Mm -hmm. Why are you doing this? And various different pieces, and found out that it was one of those aspects where. Yes, the teenage daughter was indeed uh, pregnant, and that gets to the creepy part. Right? Thank you for bringing that up. That was uh, <laughs> that was my go-to example, and it occurred to me. Someone on my team reminded me I was speaking in Minneapolis today, so we were racking our brains for another example. But uh, it really is. There's no better example than that. And partly because I think it's also sort of a compliment to Target that they were way ahead of the game. They had the best data science team. This was team. years ago. It was incredible. Yeah. It was, yeah. my, you know, I was in advertising at the time, and yeah. I was like, wow, I'm jealous. You know, but it's the point is that it still offended someone because it was just a step too far. It was an overstep. It was a bit yeah. creepy. So, so that's the idea of their okay. research and what we do just in general – um, with our with our academic partners is identify areas of shared interest where we say, wow, what you're studying is fascinating and also really important to us and our clients. Mm -hmm. um, so we sort of open our doors to them to run field experiments and see if those play out with real world data. So in this case, yeah, there's the, uh, George Lowenstein did did some really great work on uh, on privacy and willingness to share, and uh, you know found that there's of course this great disconnect in our brains where people were willing to share immense amount of data personally, and and then also say I would never want that information shared about me. So they, they so we we have this this sort of split personality that says I'm okay with sharing it, but I don't actually perceive myself as being someone that shares that kind of information so if you ask me about it I'm not going to share it with you mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah it's the uh, weird dichotomy that behavioral science is yeah yes, there's always Absolutely. two selves it's fascinating right <laughs> yeah it's like, and, and yeah. to a certain part you know a little weird and funny as you've we should have a video on that right yeah. and, <laughs> and that was a great citation this whole body of research on privacy and sharing, um, actually one of the three uh, academics, Leslie John, came from that um, Carnegie Mellon, oh, George did. Lowenstein world, oh, really? so oh. yeah, might have been inspired by have some of that work. Have to look her up. Mm -hmm. There you go. Uh, oh, fascinating. Yeah, that, that sounds, that a lot sounds of different, really fun. Um, um, go ahead, Kurt. You're, you're sitting on a question? Oh, no, I was just, I was going to actually expand upon that just a little bit more, oh, okay. um, just in, in thinking about this, but... So there's not only the creepiness component of there. There is an there's an ethical or almost moral component to, to some of that too. And and I'm thinking about some of the and I don't know much about this, but mm -hmm. Cambridge Analytics and the work that they were doing with some of the election components and being very much being able to take a uh, what they were saying, if you had 20 Facebook likes, they could determine your personality better than actually taking, uh, you know, the big five uh, personality test. And so, therefore, targeting messages at different things in order to, to kind of uncover fears and, and, and different aspects in order to get people to vote. And is there a line? What, where is that line mm -hmm. that people, that organizations need to draw to say, Yes, we can. We can get that information. Mm -hmm. We can understand you better than you probably understand yourself. But at what point does that then cross the border into being not only creepy but unethical? Do you, do you have thoughts? Great question. Yeah, and I, I would actually pull still from some of the findings that these researchers um, kind of took away from just partly the work with us, but m much more broadly, all of their interests in the space, and especially as it relates to advertising, which I yeah. think is, is really important, and there's just tremendous budgets that go into potentially exploiting people's cognitive biases in the space. They've, they kind of boil it down into three things that matter most to customers um, in terms of getting this balance right of being both helpful and not creepy and still you know, having effective advertising. Yeah. 
So the first is trust, and that's really where we played, and actually why we worked well together on this, because consumer loyalty programs tend to have higher trust levels yeah. with their customers than a, an average retailer site, which makes sense. They've opted mm -hmm. in to be a yeah. part of that community. Right. So um, trust is really important, and one way to engender trust is by being transparent when you're using these acceptable information flows that I talked about. So those those examples of those, those two rules, if it's true that you got their information directly from them and you didn't get it from a cookie site, you should say that. And that's what we found in our experiment ah. with them. We took on RewardSphere for a, several different clients. We, sh we compared a control condition which simply said recommended. Just the word recommended is has how our site usually looks. But we found that in the first party condition we said, recommended based on your clicks on this site, ah. which was true. And all we were doing is making it transparent to people. And that caused an increase of 38% in redemption. Wow. So, so just that, that additional transparency actually changed behavior. It Indeed. actually changed the way people behaved. Indeed, substantially. Wow. So that, that's yeah. cool. And so they, they, theorize that, that trust is what's going into that. But there are other important pillars too, and one is um, uh, the sense of control, that reminding people that they have some control in the space, um, that they haven't sort of s s succeeded that in just in exchange for getting relevant information. So there's another great study by a different academic, I think this was Catherine Tucker at MIT, who looked at, uh, she worked with Facebook and looked at certain um, personalized advertisements that were not performing very well. Okay. When people were getting customized ads that would say something like, for example, if they could t see that you were a fan of Beyonce on, yeah. on Facebook, they would say, as a fan of Beyonce, we know you appreciate strong women and blah, blah, blah. Pe those didn't perform very well. But what happened was halfway through the experiment or this project, Facebook changed their privacy settings and made it clear to the to users that they have the ability to change their privacy settings. Mm -hmm. Like they reminded people, you can you own this data, you can change your privacy settings. And after they did that, those customized ads like doubled in performance. They were way more effective. People were reminded that, well, this is okay. I have control over this. And, and, it and I said it was okay for this to be public. And because I, I gave that permission, then it's okay for you to advertise to me that way, to promote to me that way. Yes. But if I'm getting this right, and this is why Kurt's question is so important, is that that can sort of be manipulated. Because I think there's research that shows, too, that you can you can also find that offsetting effect by, um, by sort of manipulating and using that sense of control mm -hmm. around something that's not even really relevant. Like if you remind people, remember, you can change your profile picture at yeah. any time. You're still reminding them of a sense of control, and yeah. that actually still works. That actually still makes the, the targeted ads uh, perform better, but that's not really fair. That's not the control that is relevant to the situation. Well, and even, yeah. I think even yeah. to the point where you're giving them control over their privacy, and if you're if if anybody is like me, I look at the legal s that you read through on that privacy, and it just over it you know it's cognitive overload, and so I will either just um, say no and just be that you know that status quo bias, or if I do, I don't really understand what I'm necessarily you know agreeing mm -hmm. to. Yes, I might have a sense of control, but I have no real con idea if that control is is real or not real. So. I went to a small summit on this very topic of transparency and privacy, yeah. and there was this fascinating early work from an academic who looked at the intersection of design and um, and, and basically the legal problem of like jamming in all of that important legalese and yes. getting people to understand what they're signing themselves up for in these disclaimers. And he was finding that when they use the exact same language, um, but made it in a way that Target would make it look, you know, yep. beautiful colors, bubbles, kind of looked like a nice infographic that people uh, assumed that the site was, the language was more friendly and that they were using their data in a much more conservative way. Oh. They made all these assumptions just because it felt more visually appealing yeah. versus that recoiling that we feel when you see, um, you know, a typical contract. <laughs> Eight point font and yeah. Yeah, exactly. legal-esque words that are... That um, whole um, yeah. South yes. Park human centipede. So, uh, <laughs> <edition>. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, 
our podcast uh, appeals to people who have uh, interest in the behavioral sciences. What uh, what's topical right now for you? What what are you reading now? What's uh, what's on your uh, your nightstand? What what are the kinds of things that are that are influencing you right now when it comes to either you know a popular culture uh, you know you know pop yeah. nonfiction or um, sure. you know articles. Uh, I'm a, I'm a big audible and podcast person, so you know I'm a, I do the two X thing. So I'm like jamming them in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> information junkie. Um, right now, I'm really enjoying an audible um, a book by Melissa Dahl, who's uh, editor in chief, I think, of um, Science of Us, which is a great blog in the space. And her book is called Cringeworthy: um, A Theory of Awkwardness. She's studying. Um, just what makes us feel embarrassed and cringy and why we remember these highly negative, emotionally salient experiences and what we can do about that. Wow. Um, and it's just, it's delightful. It's, it's totally her, <laughs> really? it's her tone. I, uh, science of us is great too. She's just yeah. really talented at translating, um, and making this stuff humorous. So I, I'm really enjoying that book and a couple others I recently really liked. Um, one is called everybody lies by, uh, Seth Stevens Davidowitz. Mm-hmm. Um, who really kind of did some groundbreaking work in his um, Stanford dissertation by using Google search data as his primary data to uh, inform conclusions about that were related to Obama winning the election despite strong evidence of explicit racism. And that was not only a controversial topic, but actually what seemed to be more controversial was his method and the fact that he was using Google data. And at the time that was shocking, but now it's like, wow, he's the king of all information because he just, he knows how to make sense of this data. And he finds all of these fascinating um, just really relatable examples that um, go back to a general principle I find really interesting about how we have these kind of, again, every, every theory has two selves, but we have this <laughs> self that we sort of present to the world and mm-hmm. the one that we keep private and that you can get at that private self through um, Google search data. You know, he even compares a simple search on um, complete the sentence, the most common ways people complete my husband is on Twitter and it's things like so nice, the cutest, the best cook, uh, the wonderful, and you know my husband is on Google, and it's like mean, abusive, a jerk, uh, the worst. Oh, <laughs> it's like they no. couldn't be more different. And it was just, it's you know, some of them are, are quite cringeworthy to bring it uh, back to that, but just fascinating about this this whole new way of doing this work and a better understanding how people really feel. And think. We have to ring up Melissa. We've yes. got to get, get her on the podcast. Yeah, That's, definitely sounds like. Fun, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, when we can bring up some cringeworthy ideas, <laughs> Def- oh. definitely. Um, let's. Oh, I, I had one. I had one more question, and uh, before we kind of get to some of my favorite questions, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking at Kurt kind of because he's like, I always go there. But um, merits right now um, is uh, the. the you you joined the company. You you left a big organization, mm-hmm. GM, to to uh, to to come to the uh, Merits Institute, and and now you're within the corporate infrastructure. Um, what is it that you ho- want to accomplish, you know, Charlotte? You know, I, I I can imagine that you're somebody with some pretty demanding goals. Um, so what is it that you want to to make this this job be? Yeah. I'm so lucky in that my personal and professional um, interests are so aligned. I mean, all I care about is behavioral science. It's like all I've read about <laughs> since I was a kid. I mean, that's I've I had maybe about ten years of experience in marketing and advertising roles, including at General Motors and Turner Broadcasting. And I worked with a lot of people who also studied and were passionate about consumer psychology. And I guess I thought that it was the closest I could get to working in applied psychology without being like an academic um, until merits just came from the sky and found me. And it's like, oh, there's a company that exists and a whole industry that exists to influence (laughs) behavior. So so that um, it felt quite serendipitous in that way. But my goal is really to make merits a visible leader in the space and have, you know, through this position, actually contribute to this growing momentum and help launch this movement in applied behavioral science in the modern marketplace, you know, specifically bringing this to the business world. I think I'm, I have unique background to do that and Merits has a unique position to do that. Um, so I really like that our work is, you know, part of it is bringing what we know from academia and from science to the company and 
understanding and translating and applying, but also an equal part of what we're doing is contributing to the field itself mm -hmm. because of the field experiments. So, you know, we just found out actually the Don't Be Creepy presentation that I'm going to talk about tonight. I just got an email today that it's been accepted by a prominent academic journal for publication. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yay. Well, I'm not, I'm not on that paper. That's the academics, oh, but okay. I, that's, that's what okay. I, I just, but the they're, research, they're yeah. thrilled and Merritt's, you know, was a part of making that happen. Well, congratulations to absolutely. Tammy and, and Kate and, and, um, and, and Leslie. Leslie. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That, yes, terrific. I'll bring that back to them. So that, that's really cool because that's kind of going to go in the, in the annals and yeah. uh, be part of this growing field. So I, it's neat to feel like uh, we're a part of some, launching something. Yeah. We share your enthusiasm. Yes, those, that's, it's, it's one of the things that we're trying to do too, is just to, to take this to the next level, right? And, and, and how do we do that? Uh, how do you apply these behavioral science principles both in work and life, right? And so work, obviously, there's a lot of things going on there, but some of these same principles that we're talking about, e either from understanding how advertisers or other people are trying to influence us mm -hmm. and making sure that we're, you know, at least some semblance of awareness around that and, and being hopefully better prepared to make ch good choices based on that. Um, and so with that, one of the things that we often ask is, so are there, if, if you had to, you know, talk to our listeners and say, all right, here is one thing, either, either how you can apply at work or in your own personal life that takes one of these principles that you found either through what you're doing or various different things that would help them? What, what would that one thing be? Gosh, hard to pick just one. All um, right, go for but two. One that, sure. two or three. Okay. <laughs> um, a lot of, this, this is probably telling because probably a newer part of my role is um, speaking and speaking at events and that's actually how we met. Yep. Um, and that's not, you know, like supernatural or like my favorite thing to do. So I think some of these things um, is that's what came to mind is where some of my like most recent growth maybe has come from. So I would think about one that sticks with me all the time is this research on valence versus intensity. Ah. And like, if you're nervous, you never tell yourself not to be nervous. Just tell yourself you're excited. Yeah. And that's much closer than um, trying to like calm yourself down, which will backfire. Um, and I also think about um, growth mindset and Carol Dweck's work oh, on yeah. growth, yep. growth mindset. We use that a lot at work as we talk about employee engagement internally and in, in our employee programs for clients. But um, I think about it for myself too because I have, I'm a type A overachiever type and it's really easy for me to get hung up I on. I never got that idea. <laughs> that, wow, that just totally blows me <laughs> I know I sound like a hippie, but. No, I'm sorry for interrupting you. No, that's funny. No, it's fine. But yeah, I, I try to like remind myself that growths are a win and you know doing something that might not have been a success or maybe nothing like major happened today but maybe I learned some probably did learn something new mm -hmm. which is thankfully a big part of my job so I try to be really aware of that that yeah. you know we, we can count those successes as sometimes we call them get better goals versus okay. be good goals some those are good to keep in mind too yeah. I like that get better get better, get better goals, goals. Yeah, yeah who's was that's not mine I can't remember who's that yeah one. no it's and I, I uh, one of those aspects of that you know, nervousness and taking that, the, you know, increased heart rate and the, the sweating and whatever else that comes around with, with that kind of component and just reframing it is, I think, one of the biggest insights that I think a lot of people can really use because it is. It's that, that same nervousness that you get uh, in getting up in front of, or getting up in front of people and talking. Uh, is the same one that you have when you're getting ready to run a race and mm. various different things. Your body is responding in the same way, and so it's just how your mind interprets it. So if you can change how your mind interprets it, hey. Uh, happened to me recently I, uh, with the Super Bowl in town. They, uh, there was a, You were a, playing? What? I wasn't playing, no. <laughs> I was, I was, I was uh, ziplining across the Mississippi. You did? On, on z in a zero-degree weather with... so. Uh, it was cold. It was really super cold, and I'm there with. I was there with a few family members, and they were. They had that white, pale look of sheer terror on their faces, and I was in that mind space of all those butterflies are going to be excitement, and yeah. and this is going to be fun. And it was. It was really cold, but it was really fun. It was really, you really fun. could not have paid me to do you that. Did, damn. You did not yeah. tell me about this, Tim. I'm going to have to Sorry, have it's, a big, a... it's a big secret. I'm, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to let you know. Okay. Um, 
this is my favorite part of the discussion, Charlotte. So, and Kurt gives me the eye every time. It's like, but, but we're here to talk about music too because this is the behavioral groups, mm. right? So um, let's say, uh, let's imagine that uh, you get the Nobel Prize and that you're gonna be walking across the stage. What is your theme music gonna be? And you warned me that this was coming, so I it consumed my week. And <laughs> See, everybody gets nervous about this question. It's why a hard this, question. Why is this so hard? And what happened was it put in my head this song I could not get out of my head, even though it's, there's no reason this would be my song, but I'll just say there's a Shakira song that's a like a disco beat, and it's called She-Wolf. And I have a buddy named Oven who turned it into Sharwolf. And he would say, <laughs> every time he sees me, he sings, there's a Sharwolf in my closet. <laughs> so that's what I'm ahead all week, but um, that's not my theme song. But I um, I decided to crowdsource it today, and I asked my Facebook friends um, just a couple of hours ago um, for serious recommendations. None none of none of them were very good. Um, but I, <laughs> what I got back were um, well, a lot of just trashy rap songs. Um, just tells you how like just silly my friends are um and i got back um did any of them resonate was there anything in there i think there was one that was just so perfect that's um i'm probably not the first to suggest it but it's called she blinded me with science yeah oh yeah Uh, thomas dolby yeah Yeah. that's that's pretty cool yeah Okay. That would probably need to be me. You're the first given, one. Yeah. yeah. I also got a couple of handbell jokes. That's a fun fact about me. I was a I was a fantastic handbell ringer well, throughout high school. So it could be some obscure handbell song. We could have a whole <laughs> other podcast just on Charlotte's <laughs> handbell ringing. <laughs> or, or not. Or yeah. not. <laughs> I'd need like 16 others. It's really a team. Yeah. It's okay. a team effort. <laughs> it's a team effort. Well, Charlotte, thank you. This has been fascinating. It's... Uh, really insightful so we appreciate the time and uh we're excited to to share this so yeah thank you thank you and welcome to our grooving session where tim and i groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview and in this case also the meetup that we did with charlotte have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and then we just talk about whatever comes into our crazy little heads. So, Tim, start off. Charlotte, what did you think? What were some of the really fascinating things for you? Gosh, it was such a pleasure to have her um, speak. Uh, So to have the live meetup was a really great one-two punch after the podcast interview, which was really fun. And um, the, the, I guess the biggest thing that struck me about the discussion with Charlotte was her reliance on data and research. Yes. And as a practitioner, I thought that that was just great, that she is really focused and looking for opportunities to, to say, well, what, what's actually going on in the world and how can we, how can we discover it in, a, in a, a way that we can actually draw comparisons from and draw knowledge from? And that is largely uh, uh, you know, using the scientific method. Right. So. And, and I think that the, the interesting part on that is bringing in um, the outside academics into the work that she's doing, right? And getting them to really apply that scientific discipline to it and, and bringing that to, to bear then on actual field experiments. Uh, and I think the, the, the value sometimes is that, you know, oftentimes academics, uh, we do things in, in a lab, in a vacuum that don't always have all of those outside confounding factors that come into real world. And so the ability to to bring in some of those those people to into a world where there are confounding factors and all these other fact things that are going on and yet still be able to, to parse out those those key insights I think yeah. is really interesting what uh, what what struck you is what 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 are your big takeaways from the discussion Kurt? well I, I will go on that and one of the things that I, I wanted to really that I liked what she was talking about because it plays into a lot of the work that that I do, the work that you do as well, is that it's often difficult to get clients to buy into doing that type of an experiment inside of an organization with employees because of that element of fairness that they have or or that concern of saying to an employee that you're part of an experiment. Just that there's a cringeworthiness there of, of different things. And we'll talk about cringeworthiness I think think later too. Um, so I think that was really interesting. The, the other part, I mean, was just her whole 
the talk that she did about the data and, and how data can be used in a creepy manner or in a non-so-creepy manner uh, and some of the insights. And I thought there were some really applicable components, particularly in the meetup and some of the questions that we had afterwards. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that, for me, was really fascinating. She had a great example. The, uh, uh, I, tell, uh, I tell Bob uh, yeah. that I'm, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm trying to lose 15 pounds, and then Bob tells you that I'm trying to lose 15 pounds, and then the next time you and I see each other, you say, hey, Tim, I heard you're trying to lose 15 pounds. That's great. I'm like... Uh, and, and, and the way Charlotte put it was so great. She's not concerned that you know. She's concerned about how you how you came to how know. How you found out, right? Yeah. I wasn't the one who I didn't, was... I didn't tell you directly. Right. Uh, you found out through a third party, and that there's a creepiness factor in that, right? right. There's that creepiness. And then the, the, the other part about making assumptions, right? And so mm, that yes. she brought up for the other aspect of this, which is... You know, you don't want to make assumptions about people, right? It's one of the things that we don't... You don't go up to somebody, oh, are you pregnant? And <laughs> yes. that's a no-no. My wife taught me that um, very early on. Uh, that's not <laughs> what you do when you, you see somebody who may be through. pregnant, but they yeah. may not be pregnant. And so those are mm-hmm. the assumptions that you don't want to make. And yet we do that all of the time from a digital... Or marketers do that all of the time in that digital world of data and looking at that data and making an assumption about who you are or what you want to buy or various different things. And we talked about the target example uh, again. Yeah, and that, classic. That just, you know, exonifies that. I mean, that is that is the classic component of making mm-hmm. assumptions. And yes, there's some benefit to that to a certain degree, but it's very difficult uh, to know where that line in the sand is that you don't want to cross over. That is the uh, the ultimate example of just because you can, do you think you should? Yeah. There is this element of we we need to figure out uh, as um, as a community around uh, around the use of behavioral sciences. When is it appropriate and when is it not? We keep coming back to this. This is over and over and over again this topic keeps coming up and I think it keeps coming up because we're, we're at the beginning stages of this in, in the application and there are opportunities of, you know, that we can, but should we? And we're at the forefront of this. The It's only going to get worse. And so I think yes, for yes. us, we're able to, I think from a community, right? From a community of practitioners who are actually applying these things. Uh, how do we govern ourselves? Mm-hmm. And what happens if we don't govern ourselves effectively? What does that mean for the long-term kind of area of, of practice that we're doing? And Absolutely. I think it's, it can be very scary. Absolutely. And the more big data gets used, the more mechanical learning, the more machine learning uh, comes into play, the more algorithms gets created on the fly and um, based on algorithms that have been created about about things that we want to know, uh, th- we, we really need to be careful, I think, from an ethical perspective about how we're treating the people who are involved in this. Yeah, and, and uh, again, uh, as part of the the conversation that we had in, in the meetup afterwards, uh, you know, it was done right after you know a school shooting, um, and and the conversation got along to the point of saying, you know, so where does that line draw if you can get some of that data from uh, the big big information um, from somebody's Facebook posts and different things that you can get to a point where you're going, hey, there's a 97% chance, 98% chance that this person could go off the deep end and do something like that. And yet there's still 2% that they might not. They might not. And, you know, does it become the minority report? And do, you know, where is that line that says, yes, this is okay versus no, it's not. And those are questions that I don't, I don't have an answer for. Um, but I think they're questions that need to be raised. Uh, agreed, agreed. Uh, I, I wanted to, to to call attention to uh, her work with Franz De Waal or her yes. her her affinity yes. for her fellow Emery um, 
professor and uh, the, uh, the, uh, the work with the uh, bonobos speci- uh, specifically. Octopuses, that was a new one on me. Yes. Uh, I didn't know about uh, his work with octopuses. That was kind of interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I, I found that fascinating too. I, I love, and, and we've used this again, we, we keep coming back to this component again. There's themes that come out in yeah. these behavioral yeah. groups. Uh, fairness. And fairness, oh, and yeah, how huge. important fairness is, uh, and you know, obviously the the capuchin monkey experiment with the grapes and the cucumbers is classic. But I think we what what Charlotte brought in was saying, so knowing that is 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 great. But how do you apply that in then to right. the programs that that she and Merritts are creating? Anything that, you know, a, a, an organization is doing, even what you're doing with your family, right? I think there are some of those applications from fairness perspective and understanding that fairness is this innate sense that we have that you can't just, oh, it's okay, I'll think it through and not not really worry about it. No, it's complicated. It's complicated, but you, we need to take that into consideration. Yeah. And I think it has a, a greater impact than we think. And... Those are some of the factors that I I, I just was glad that she brought that up. And again, what do you think of that? Yeah, uh, we we do. Uh, you know, kind of getting back to the way that we process things with uh, heuristics and these these decision rules of thumb. Um, our, our brains are just working so hard uh, that every chance that we get, we're looking for a way to cut corners and burn less calories on our brain. And so this is this is it's hard to 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 say. Wait a minute, this is an opportunity to stop and think about the implications. Yes, because it's hard. It um, is hard. It, it, I mean, we're not engineers where where if we know the span that the bridge has to cross and the kind of materials we're using, we can do the calculations and say, well, this is how much support it's going to yeah. need. When it comes to reciprocity and fairness, it's highly situational. It has a lot to do with with the situation and the yep. people involved. And it's perceptional, right? So yes, you can yes. actually have a fair incentive program, a fair performance management rating, a fair whatever it would uh, be. By some objective standard. By some fair. objective standard. Yet, if you interpret that or perceive that system to be unfair, even if you can arguably show through data and various different things, and I, I see this all the time with incentive programs, right? They're going, well, my goal isn't fair. And you're going, your goal is fair. Look, here's all the data. doesn't matter because it, it, it hits home that it's not fair. I, I'm in a geography that's different. I, you know, am, yeah. have a harder time. It's And it's usually fair on the negative aspect in the incentive world, but that's, that's how it goes. I remember describing a, introducing a goal setting uh, program to a bunch of sales reps for a large telecommunications firm. And I asked if there were any questions and one, one rep raised his hands and I said, yeah, you know, what, what, what's your question? And he said, well, what are you trying to do to us? <laughs> and he was, he was, yeah. he had a, a, a look of alert and sorrow on his face. Like he was just being victimized at yeah. that moment. It's like wow, yeah, and and so again, you you to your point that situational component I think is really mm-hmm. key to understanding and applying a, a, a sense of fairness, and and it's it's hard, and so let's actually burn some extra calories and stop and think about that, um, you know, use our heads to lose some weight. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, what else? I know you had, we had talked earlier, you were talking about some of the trust control and justification components. Yeah, I thought that that was a, that's a great model that came from that work that she did with uh, Leslie John, Tammy Kim, and Kate Burroughs. Um, this whole idea of, of if the communication is trustworthy, right, if, if it's coming from a place that, that, I, that, I, I, that I as the consumer have sort of authorized or agreed to, and if I feel like I have a certain amount of control over the data as the consumer, and, then, and that the communication is justified. Yeah. Like, well, we're sending you this because you clicked on something else on right. our site. Uh, those, those are such great common sense rules, and, 
and I'm really glad that they are supported by the by the science and the work that was was done by these uh, researchers. Yeah, I, and what was interesting and and what I like that. Uh, Charlotte pointed out, and I can't remember if it was in the podcast or if it was in the actual meetup. So I forgive, uh, forgive me, please, if if this wasn't talked about. But she talked about the sense of control, and how that control, that sense of control, can actually be, be manipulated yes. into a situation. Um, so yes, I feel control, so I'm more likely to to uh, feel okay that that this intrusion isn't creepy. But that sense of control is. Well, you can change your profile picture is what the one I think that she said, which really has no relevance. No relevance. On whether or not you are controlling that that the access or you know the, the data yeah. that, that you're you're preventing you're presenting out to the to the world, uh, and so even understanding you know those those kind of components I think are really good. We there's a lot of ethical lines that we tend to have conversations on it these these i'm just uh it's it's a tough question sometimes i think that we we face right and so yes tough. if you have control but is that control real or really just kind of you know something that is you know changing the color of of the the suit you're wearing as opposed to you know something real if we're paying attention we can be aware of and notice and then take action on some of these ethical questions as practitioners uh, and as designers, uh, mm -hmm. as marketers and um, in human resources. I think there's a whole variety of elements that if we're tuned in, we could be having these kinds of discussions on a, on a daily basis. Yeah. I, I don't think it's fair to assume that we're always going to naturally act ethically in every situation. And that having these these questions about what what makes sense, what what what's right, um, as as if we know what's right yeah, <laughs> all the I, time. I, I mean, it's a big question, right? <laughs> but it's situational. It's situational so and, and it, hard, it, and 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 so we it, we can't fall back on those heuristics and the no. simple uh, elements of of how we react without having something you know, not where we don't think about it. So, right. all good. What else? Uh, Kurt, did you have anything else that you wanted to, I to cover just, today? I was just, I was a little interesting that she didn't grab onto that first chief behavioral officer title that we, we, we put oh, on her, man, that she was yeah. actually very good about pushing off on, on well, saying, hey, I think that this is... Uh, she's not the first. And, uh, well, yeah. She's up there. She's and, up and there. It's amazing. So you... Last, uh, any any other things? I know she blinded me with science. <laughs> that was so great. That was just terrific. That was uh, just terrific. It, it fits her. It really does fit. And that she crowdsourced. Mm -hmm. She uh, crowdsourced it, of she course. She crowdsourced uh, that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it obviously dates me, but I would never even think of crowdsourcing my theme song. <laughs> I probably should because obviously I don't. I don't get. Uh, Get, get stuff. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, so listeners, thanks very much. Uh, we want to uh, thank you for listening to uh, this podcast. We want to encourage everyone to uh, go out and like it, uh, rate it uh, from the favorite place that you get your podcast. And if you could just do one thing just today when you're finished listening, just share it with one person. Just someone who you think might actually like the Behavioral Grooves podcast, if you would. We really appreciate that. Actually share it with two people. There you go. Oh, <laughs> the challenge is out and there. And then they can share it with two, and then they share it with two, and then pretty soon we have a whole movement going. The behavioral grooves movement. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. Mm -hmm.